0: Salam and hello. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakala Piper. And as always, I am so grateful that you are with us today. Wherever you are in the world, I hope that you are healthy, you are safe, that your family is well. I mean, these days have been incredibly uncertain, incredibly hard for many of us. And I am thinking of each and every one of you. Over the last few weeks on the show, we have tried to think about the coronavirus pandemic from different angles. Two weeks ago, my friend Dr. Michael Chung was with us, and he explained to us both the science of the pandemic and also how to stay well even if we get COVID-19. Last week, Julie Mwabe unpacked for us the patriarchy of the pandemic, and I learned a great deal from her expertise. If you have time, check out those episodes. I think you'll enjoy them and find them of good use to you and your community. Today on the show, we're going to talk about human rights in the middle of this pandemic. The Greek physician Hippocrates famously wrote the phrase, do no harm, and those words are sacred to both medical professionals and human rights advocates who try and preserve health as a human right during crises around the world. Today on the show, it's my pleasure to welcome Urungu Houghton to Uproot. Urungu is the Kenya Executive Director of Amnesty International, and he was previously the Executive Director for Chapter One Kenya and the Society for International Development. Urungu has established an extensive U.S. $2 million public interest campaign program that has expanded the right to association and has protected public school land and public resources from corruption over the last four years. In October, Urungu traveled to the Mexico-US border to advocate for African migrants. And Urungu is well known in Kenya and abroad as an inspirational speaker, change facilitator, and skillful moderator. He has a weekly column in the Sunday Standard, and it's something that I always make time to read. And he's currently writing a book on building constitutionalism in Kenya. He and his incredible wife, Robin, are social conscious leaders here in Nairobi. He's a parent, he's an actively engaged in uplifting our community, and Urungu is a voice that we need during this very uncertain time. So it's really my honor and pleasure to welcome Arungu Houghton, Amnesty International Kenya Executive Director to Uproot. Urungu, it's a pleasure and an honor to welcome you to Uproot today. Thank you for being with me.
1: Thank you very much, Lily, and uh, what extraordinary times we are facing.
0: Yeah, and truly it's not where any of us thought we would be in the first of the years we're making our resolutions. But Urunga, you know, you have been at human rights work for a very long time with Amnesty and with other organizations. Let me ask you, outside of this extraordinary moment, what are your normal first priorities whenever there is a national crisis, whether it's elections or terrorism or otherwise? What are the things that rise to the top of your mind whenever a crisis begins in a country?
1: Well, first, I mean, obviously, the first thing is is keeping people safe. Um, uh, Secondly, keeping people engaged and keeping everything transparent and um, open so that we can see what's happening. Because, you know, even in a case like COVID, um, you know, one size cannot fit everything. And uh, prescriptions that come down from the WHO uh, may work in one part of the world, but in other parts of the world, they just don't work. So remaining conscious. um, I'm, I'm very fond of the word, you know, the words conscious leadership that actually, um, sitting in the space of what's happening. Um, how do we interpret what needs to happen today, tomorrow, and over the next 90 days?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, now here we are in the middle of COVID-19. Um, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is probably in a, in a different place than the rest of the world is, both in number of cases documented. Government response has been different here. Um, how do you think this pandemic is changing or informing the human rights, um, you know, work that you're trying to do right now?
1: I mean, it's it's like everybody else, it's disrupted the entire year. Um, And um, I think we need to look at this in a historical context. You know, there was no universal declaration of human rights in the time of the bubonic plague. Um, And, uh, you know, we're in a like I said, an extraordinary moment because we have to fight um, this uh, uh, pandemic, but at the same time, we have to do this within a human rights framework and not just the, the right to health, but all the rights. I mean, one of the things that I think we've all struggled with, um, and it it is really a testimony to how human rights conscious our lives are, is the um, taking away of freedoms that we had taken uh, as really, you know, kind of everyday freedoms. The freedom to worship together, the freedom to speak aloud, the freedom to move, um, the freedom to assemble. I mean, these were all things that um, many of us took for granted, um, which have come to an abrupt halt as we've had to um, implement these three uh, basic um, measures, the stay-at-home measure, the uh, physical distancing, and also, lastly, the um, the concept of essentially uh, remaining distance uh, from each other.
0: Yeah, so in that context, let's maybe bring it down to our local context here in Kenya, because I think what we're seeing and learning here can be broadly applied. Um, every government is really wrestling with, like you said, the restriction of these freedoms that we don't even count as a freedom, right? We just take it for granted as the normal way we live our lives. So here in Kenya, we've seen we're now currently under a curfew from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. There's restriction, restricted movement between counties for the next um, I don't know what we are now. It was, it was 21 days. I don't know how far we are now until probably a week. A- into the- April.
1: April the 28th is the 28th, uh, date.
0: Okay, I, someone said the time has stopped timing. That's what I feel like. I never know <laughs> what day exactly I'm in. So we still have some time also in that restricted movement. And in light of these restrictions, we've seen some police force that's been very heavy handed. It's been tragic loss of life, including a young child um, that you know really broke all of our hearts, Yasin Moyo. Um, we've seen you know abuse of power Murungo, help us think through how do we as citizens and how do we hold our governments accountable in a time where we both need their leadership and their protection, and yet we also want to maintain some sense of freedom and, you know, autonomy. How, how do we balance those two?
1: Well, I think the first thing is just just to say that we um, we must not allow the Constitution and the various laws that uh, frame uh, our public behavior to be suspended at this time. We must continue to remind ourselves what they are. Um, and secondly, also, we must remind our leaders um, and those that exercise state power that they are they're constantly um, regulated by those, um, uh, those rights and those freedoms and those responsibilities. And um, obviously, in a case where you've got a pandemic that operates through um, physical proximity, um, this, you know, this freedom of being able to move and to uh, continue to interact with people is actually our greatest threat um, uh, at this time. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense um, to impose a curfew uh, and to um, reduce movement um, across different counties. And even, uh, I suspect, um, you know, depending on what the figures will be as we go into mass testing, we may even have to see movement restricted within uh, particular counties as well. But I think the important thing is um, to recognize that at a time like this, you need uh, all of society to engage. You, you, you can't manage this um, as a single executive or a single arm of government. Um, it is really important to be clear what is it that we have to do as a nation at this historic moment and enroll people into that. What essentially we're doing is changing norms. We're changing public behavior. Um, and that is not something that you can enforce and force uh, people Uh, to to do. You have to enroll them. You have to uh, get them uh, to understand that different choices are required at this moment. Um, And that, you know, we do this out of compassion and out of care and a sense of solidarity with other people.
0: Absolutely. You've you've written, uh, you know, I mentioned your column and the standard every week. You've written in the past about there is a role. In fact, interestingly enough, I came across your article from January when you were talking about we can't leave all of our good health in the hands of doctors, that's reckless and dangerous. And you pointed out good citizenship as being one way that we keep ourselves healthy. And of course, this is before the pandemic was widespread, and so it's a bit prophetic. In this moment, what does good citizenship look like then in light of a time where sometimes there is overreach of government exercise to keep us safe? I mean, theres we're living in that tension day to day. You are not new to it. You've been working in this region and for a long time you know, what is that balance between good good citizenship and holding government to account in the way that human rights are preserved?
1: I mean, I think, you know, active citizenship, good citizenship is um, doing a number of things. I mean, at this historic moment, it is staying at home. It is um, essentially, um, for those of you who are landlords, ensuring that uh, your tenants are not um, evicted at this point. It is also sharing the little that we have across families. It is also not uh, getting, um, you know, a protective personal equipment that should be reserved only for health workers and police officers. It is uh, essentially, um, uh, thirdly, it is um, really checking in with your neighbours and making sure that they too are protected at this time. Um, so that's the first uh, very, I guess what I call the very basic um, uh, expectations of citizenship at this moment, but it, it is also looking out uh, to how public resources are going to be managed. Um, we, we, as Amnesty, have been focusing uh, over the last four weeks on kind of three major things. The first is really ensuring that there is no stigma and discrimination um, that is uh, directed towards people with COVID-19. Um, that they are protected at this time and uh, their privacy is protected. And you started off with this very powerful um, oath that has been there, I think, from 300 um, uh, BC, which is the Hippocratic Oath. Um, And one of the important things there is is, um, a mention of secrets, the holy secrets, um, that every human being um, in relationship to their medical condition um, must be protected uh, at this time. So I think that's the, uh, the first area of focus we've had. The second really has been around essentially making sure that communities that are very vulnerable, in the case of Nairobi, uh, 2.5 million uh, households don't have water uh, regularly. They don't have security of tenure. They don't have houses um, uh, or spaces that they can physically distance themselves um, from others. Many of them live in these 10 by 10, uh, 10 foot by 10 foot um, uh, shacks. And um, the prescriptions that came down from the uh, WHO work very well for middle class, employed and formal sector um, uh, you know, households, but they don't work at all for informal sector households. Um, so really kind of getting the government to focus on uh, a number of things, like, for example, a moratorium on disconnections of water and electricity for 90 days. Um, a uh, free water services for communities um, over these 90 days. And what's been really great is watching the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Water actually adopt these prescriptions uh, that we released on uh, World Water Day um, in uh, mid-March. Uh, uh, and I think the third area really has been around um, protection of people who go into mandatory quarantine. In Kenya, we've had Uh, Up until very recently, 2,000 people who were um, compelled to go into uh, collective uh, centers um, for a period of 14 days. And uh, for many of them, uh, their experience has been essentially that they have been able to self-isolate. They have been able to leave after two weeks. But for uh, for a number of them, they've not been able to do that either because the mandatory quarantine centers were mismanaged They were recklessly, um, uh, you know, designed, and there was no oversight. So people basically commingled. I mean, we've had stories of even people having parties and um, getting uh, alcohol brought in um, uh, into these quarantine centers. And for that reason, they've had to extend uh, the quarantine centers, but really making sure that the government is clear in terms of the prescriptions and the guidelines that, uh, I guess, guide a mandatory quarantine center. And as we move into the more uglier and more frightening part of the uh, COVID pandemic, which is essentially that, you know, we will start to see numbers of uh, people dying from COVID-19 going up, making sure that their burials and the services around uh, the disposal of their bodies at this time is dignified. It is in keeping with um, their religious faiths and that their families are not uh, traumatized twice by the loss and then the disposal uh, or the burial of their, of their loved ones.
0: You've mentioned some really big ideas. I want to just kind of dig a little bit deeper into a few of them. Um, what can we do as regular people to hold a government account around these issues around stigma? What do you think is the key linchpin to help us not get stuck in a place that we were around HIV AIDS not that long ago?
1: I, mean, I think the first thing is we have to give up the curiosity and the inquiry around um, what's happening to people with um, COVID-19. It is not our business. It is really not, um, you know, a dignified way of engaging with somebody who's fighting for their fighting for their life. We we can't interrogate every aspect of their treatment mm-hmm. and whether they got the dates uh, right and when they flew into the country, flew, uh, traveled to which part of the country. That information is really not that important. It is the information of public health officers and epidemiologists to understand, um, primarily from the point of view of how many people have come into contact with people who are positive with COVID nineteen, and essentially help those people to isolate, get testing, and protect themselves. It's the responsibility of the state. Um, we've had, um, you know, even senators, uh, elected representatives. Um, arguing for uh, the naming of people who are currently um, affected with, uh, who currently have COVID-19. And again, the good thing is that um, we have a number of laws and a constitutional principle that says that we have the right to privacy. Uh, In the same way that if I got COVID-19, I wouldn't want the whole of Twitter debating what's happening to me at this point. How did I get it? Who have I passed it on to? Um, I think that's the, the, the line that we must hold for all citizens, um, that they have a right to privacy at this point. And the good thing is that the public health workers have this built into either the patient's um, charter or the their own code of ethics. Um, I think as responsible citizens, we need to make that into this, into our own set of uh, behavior and our own set of ethics yeah. at this time. And I think if we do that, um, we will really protect each other at this point. And we will make it easier for people to yeah. come out to the public health workers and say, I have symptoms. I need treatment.
0: I, I like what you're saying because it's not an extraordinary effort to do this. It is basic yeah. common courtesy. And yeah. doing what we do on a normal day. I think our region is known for warmth and hospitality. And so we exercise that now in the same way, in a different way, you know, that we are, yeah, respectful and mindful and and don't spread things. I mean, WhatsApp, I think, is blowing up every day with a new theory or a new, yeah. uh, you know, uh, yeah, deep yeah. state idea. And I think keeping those to a minimum, bare minimum, and, you know, only sharing facts and information and advocating for those who need help. Um, yeah, you're right. It's a simple, simple
1: We're getting to a time where actually, I think we're gonna petition, um, I think it's Facebook, um, that they need to change the name of the app, uh, which is What's Not App.
0: Yes, right, right, absolutely. I wanna talk about the second thing you mentioned about focusing on vulnerable communities. Um, Mm. We've seen responses of of varying degrees in our neighboring countries. Rwanda and Uganda have started food distribution programs in uh, poor communities, those who are really, you know, daily laborers who really cannot go out and earn their daily bread. Kenyan government this week released a directive that all giving should be funneled through the government, um, which of course raises some concerns and some questions. I think I'm wrestling with this idea of government response between, you know, being kind of open democracies like Kenya is um, and what we can do in preserving human rights. And at the same time, a response from a government that is complete and absolute and considers everyone in such a time. I think. You know, we're here in Kenya, there was so much debate a week ago about going to total lockdown and people were saying, but how can you do that when people cannot feed their families? If you think you can lock someone down and they need, they're they hungry, you're misinformed. So help us navigate this kind of, It's in some ways it's an intellectual exercise, but it does play out in how we relate to one another. You know, how do we balance this open democracy and yet we don't have a, a, a government-wide feeding program yet? Um, yeah. I don't know your thoughts on that.
1: I mean, it's a real fascinating discussion, and I'm sure you know PhDs are going to be written on this for, for years to come. Um, I mean, I, I you know I've looked at different governments' approaches um, to you know from the Singaporean model to the Chinese model, for example, and um, it's actually quite difficult to get a to get a ideological, I guess what you'd call an ideological statement, which is democratic governments manage um, uh, pandemics better than autocratic governments, because there are elements, I think, of both that um, are there. Um, But what we have seen um, is that, um, you know, where you don't try and centralize information, where you don't try and centralize um, service delivery or distribution of essential services, um, you can actually unleash the resources that are available in a society. the presence of an active, free—you uh, know—the presence of an active free press is critical at a moment like this. And this is not the time to start controlling information. Um, uh, yes, correcting uh, in, inaccurate information, but really not beginning to persecute um, journalists or health workers for essentially pointing out where the weaknesses are in the system, uh, as was in the case of, of the first couple of months of China. Um, so I, I think what we, we really need to see, and I, if I come back to this, actually, the point you raised, which is a great moment. Um, so, yes, the government you know, issued a, uh, a directive after the uh, breakdown of uh, the distribution in Kibra. I think it was on Friday. And right. you saw pandemonium. I mean, literally, you saw people crowding on each other. Um, uh, there is rumored to have been two deaths um, not verified but definitely a lot of injuries as people crowded to get access to this very limited um, contribution that was made by a member of parliament and managed by the security services. Um, Fortunately, uh, within, I think it was within six hours, that uh, directive was rescinded with a new directive that says that um, those people who are generating um, essential supplies and distributing them simply have to notify the national, um, uh, you know, mechanism, the resource fund uh, that you're doing to make sure that the security provisions are put in place, so that you don't have stampeding and you don't have uh, people um, uh, essentially uh, spreading COVID as they try to get access to food supplies. Mm-hmm. But what I was struck with in that moment was not just the breakdown of the distribution service, but I was also struck by how. Uh, hungry people were, how, um, you know, how vulnerable people felt that they actually needed to break into uh, the chief's camp in order to try and get access to the the food. And I think that does tell us that we are facing, you know, many, many people are facing real difficulties with accessing just very basic uh, food supplies um, that they need for their families. Um, so I think coming back to this issue, I think what we need to do is we need to see government continue to have a whole of society approach Um to how we deal with the different aspects of uh, the needs that we are, and essentially trying to have a single pipeline um, will not work uh, for the forty um, you know forty seven percent of the population that are before the poverty line. We just don't have the capacity
0: yeah. And I appreciate you providing some clarity on that directive because I think that's really important for us to understand here. And at the end of the show, I will highlight. um, I turn to this every week a new organization that's giving out food stuff or health supplies or, you know, supporting communities so that people can go to reliable places, Um, because that is a real thing. The hunger levels at some point, um, as the whole world is experiencing, actually this economic crisis that is coming on the heels of a health crisis, and both have to be managed well and effectively for sure. Um, Let me ask you, you know, we are also sitting in a time where, you know, there's a lot of mistrust. um, And yet we don't want to create outrage simply. We want to create justice. Um, One of my personal heroes is Brian Stevenson and from the Equal Justice Initiative in the US, and he talks about how the opposite of poverty is not wealth but the opposite of poverty is justice. So, Urungu, in this moment in time, how can we create more justice without just creating alarm or outrage about inequities that we see or misappropriations of power? Because at the end of the day, just to make a lot of noise is not going to necessarily help my neighbor. So, can you help us guide us to how do we create more justice? We've talked about, you know, minimizing misinformation and reducing stigma. Are there other ways that we can be active participants in helping our countries and our communities at this time?
1: I, mean, I think if Brian Stevenson was in Kenya, he would probably um, point us to our constitution. And he would say that you know, this is a great constitution. Um, but for the 50% of the population, um, you know, there is inequality under the law. Um, so you can have great uh, Bill of Rights provisions. But um, for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized, And not just in the time of uh, pandemic, but, you know, everyday life. Um, Many of those freedoms just seem like pipe dreams. And uh, Mm -hmm. as I was once told in Kibra, the constitution for us is like a calendar. It was, you know, we saw it in 2010. And then, you know, every year since that, we've had another calendar. It's not the constitution Mm -hmm. that we guide, uh, that we see in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing um, uh, with Amnesty, we have a couple of rules. One is uh, that we, we focus on behavior, not people. So when we call out um, human rights abuses, whether it be uh, police violence, um, our, our main focus is on the behavior and the uh, actions that need to be taken um, uh, to prevent this from happening and justice for the uh, for the victims. The second thing that we try and do is to look for the systemic uh, reasons why this is happening. What are the systems that permit um, impunity? What are the systems that permit corruption? Um, then it actually has a massive uh, potential ripple effect across um, the, the country and, and other forms of um, behavior that are happening. And then the third one, really, is to remain hope-based. Um, you know, it's, it's extremely important um, in a moment like this that we don't, we don't descend into fatalism, cynicism, and a sense of recklessness, that actually nothing matters, because everything matters. Everything that we do not do matters. So responsibility in a moment like this is really encouraging and enrolling people that actually your voice does matter, your voice, your agency does matter. Um, and it still matters in a pandemic. Um, one of the great um, you know, uh, sources of joy for me really has been watching um, uh, my wife and a number of residents in the neighborhood uh, of Kilimani essentially develop street marshals and um, train individuals who are standing up for their streets so that if somebody is sick at night, if somebody needs emergency treatment, they can call the street marshal and that street marshal can reach out to either the public health officer or the uh, officer, the police officer in charge of our division and ensure that there's safe passage for that person to get to a hospital. And I think that is active citizenship at this point, you know, organizing ourselves to be able to take care of ourselves. Um, the state can do, you know, the more we organize ourselves, the less the state has to do. I and mean, that's the, the simple rule. You know, um, if we can manage our own tensions, if we can manage our own um, regulations, the state doesn't have to step into our communities. We don't have to have boots and um, uh, general service units, uh, paramilitary uh, officers in our community. We can manage our communities for ourselves.
0: I appreciate what you said, both, all three of those things focusing on behavior, not people, on systems, and then staying hope based. And I think this pandemic is certainly exposing systems that needed attention before we got to this crisis, you've written about that as well, about how do we developed, you know, our food stores and um, distribution systems, you know, we would not have been caught kind of unaware at this moment, but nonetheless, here we are. And in this moment, becoming our own systems, creating systems where Mm -hmm. they, and I think, you know, that's, that small thing we do in our community, we can't, what you can do, what is it, is it Mother Teresa who says, what you can't do for many, do for one? You know, this idea to do, right. do it for somebody, what you can't do for many, right. we can all do something for someone um, in our communities. So, Rungu, let's just take a moment and talk about humane policing. I think this is on everyone's mind. Um Yesterday, I went to to see a friend who is unwell, and I was racing back to make it before curfew. Uh, Even I felt a little bit of unease. So can you give us your thoughts on humane policing in a time of a pandemic when public safety is equally intertwined with public health?
1: So... so As Amnesty International, we watched with horror the violence that unfolded at the um, first night of the curfew at the Likoni ferry. Um, 16 people were hospitalized, uh, a border border rider um, was killed, and he was actually uh, suddenly struck as he was trying to um, transport somebody um, and struck off his bike and uh, beaten uh, essentially to death. Um, And it was just horrific. Within the first uh, three weeks, we probably have seen seven. Uh, verified deaths, and the last one is last Sunday. Um, they also include a, um, a retired police sergeant who had worked for the police service for 32 years mm-hmm. um, and had then set up a butchery. Um, and he was beaten by uh, police officers who were about half his age
0: um,
1: and died as a result of his injuries. So, the first uh, concern we had was that. Um, you know, there were two major things. First of all, you know, um, the use of lethal force and uh, excessive force is actually uh, unacceptable under our laws. Um, it is not in the police standing orders and it's definitely not in our constitution. So there is a um, there is a legal um, uh, infraction that has happened that uh, requires justice. The second thing is that um, what it did was essentially create more fear and anxiety like you mm-hmm. just described. You know, the, the concern is not no longer getting home, it's like, am I going to get beaten by the police? Um, and that fear and anxiety is not a healthy thing at this point in time. Um, what we really need people to, to, to do is to observe the curfew and recognize that it takes a bit longer, particularly in those first few days, to use public transport to get home. And the police should have known that um, and given an allowance for at least 20 to 30 minutes um, or even an hour in the first uh, couple of days for people to get used to the idea. Um, So what we did was um, we and 20 other organizations released um, seven guidelines uh, to the Inspector General. And they were submitted to the um, Cabinet Secretary of the Interior Ministry and um, uh, members of the uh, judiciary and also the uh, legislature. And what we said was that, you know, the the police have to do at least seven things. I won't go through all of them, but the key ones really is that we are now going to require the Inspector General to hold accountable the commanding officers for the behavior of their officers. It is not enough to interdict the officers on the the constables who are on the beat in the streets. It is now the responsibility of the commanding officers at the police station or the divisional level to hold those officers accountable. Uh, the second thing we uh, called for essentially was the use of non-lethal force. It doesn't make sense, absolutely doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to bring, um, uh, you know, live ammunition in to a public order um, management uh, operation, uh, particularly when you're dealing with highly dense neighborhoods. And that's how, you know, as far as we can see, the investigation is still to be complete. The poor 13-year-old Yasin Moyo died. He died as a result of a weapon that was discharged um, onto his balcony uh, as he was looking over to see what was happening. Um, And there's no reason for that, absolutely no reason for that. There's also no reason really to be discharging volumes of tear gas into crowds that essentially forces people um, to to vomit, to um, cough, to uh, stream with tears. Um, Those are exactly the accelerators that COVID-19 requires uh, at that point. And it's not just from the perspective of the public, we need to be worried about, but also from the police uh, officers. Um, very few of the police officers have masks when they go through these operations. So actually um, having them exposed um, to uh, people you know, sneezing and coughing and uh, vomiting, um, and then go back into very crowded Land Rovers and lorries um, is just a no brainer. This should not have happened. And we continue to call uh, the uh, Inspector General and the National Police Service to standards that are humane, but that are also conscious of the distancing that we need to keep at this time.
0: And I think this is one of those things that people underappreciate about organizations like Amnesty International. This is why it's so important we have these, because as an ordinary citizen, we don't always feel like we have the ability to hold an entire police force to account. But it's so critical that human rights organizations like yourself, Human Rights Watch, are continuing to partner together to provide that accountability in a way that we as citizens cannot. That's so critical. I just want to ask you about a tendential uh, um, construct related to humane policing, which is also our criminal justice system. Um, Kenya made some decisions early on in this pandemic to anticipating the disruption to criminal justice processes. Can you highlight what you feel like they've done well in light of the pandemic? to ensure that human rights remain even for those who are awaiting trial for you know, certain um, cases?
1: Yes, I mean, I think the, the National Council on the Administration of Justice did very well and were very strategic in the very first week um, of the, uh, the curfew. There would be no uh, charging of petty offenders um, and that um, uh, the Inspector General should not um, harbor or um, uh, detain uh, suspects in police stations uh, over this period. And I think that You know, that has been a major, um, uh, you know, significant uh, policy directive in many ways. If you look at places like Brazil uh, or Ecuador, for example, where you've had um, prison breakouts, you've had police breakouts, you've had violence at police stations. Um, So they got that right. And I think um, as Amnesty, we would congratulate them um, for the foresight that was required to do that um, uh, so early on
0: of course um one of the concerns is i appreciate you acknowledging also when things go well that's so so good for us to hear that as well sorry please continue Um,
1: no absolutely i mean absolutely i mean the the one thing that we have to drop as human rights organizations is an us and them mentality um and as amnesty we're not interested in that anymore i mean that that is that is gone uh, from our conversations um for every uh you know public statement that we released on in most cases there has been backdoor diplomacy to try and get um, uh, you know, the issues that we're concerned about addressed so that we're not actually um, uh, outing um, the inspector general, but we're really giving him an opportunity to provide leadership at this time. Mm-hmm. I think the other the concern that is a creeping concern um, is the rise in uh, sex, uh, you know, sexual and gender-based violence and also child mm-hmm. defilement in this period. You know, the very sad recognition is that for many, many uh, people, uh, women and girls and um, even even men, husbands, uh, homes are not safe places. They're not places where you are safe physically or even mentally. And um, it's really a time that we need to be thinking about you know, increasing helplines, uh, counselling, uh, and also the courts need to uh, essentially begin to reopen so that in, in the cases where we have people in harm's way uh, that cannot go into shelters, that they can receive instant um, justice, and also be able to uh, get the medical treatments, the P3 forms that they require in prosecuted, even if it is to be prosecuted in a few months from now. Um, so there are cases of serious crimes that have to, that cannot wait uh, for the pandemic.
0: Absolutely. And, and for anybody who's listening, who knows somebody who is a victim of domestic abuse or a child, a woman, anyone, you can call the Kenya National Hotline, which is 1195. 1195, it is toll free. 24 hours, it's in full operation. I would definitely point people there as a first line of resource. Um, You're absolutely right, Urungu. We will probably come out of this crisis and need all of these systems to be stronger than ever and everyone putting their hand to the task together because there will be a lot to maintain and to support um, in the coming months for sure.
1: Somebody said to me, you know, uh, there was a story that's told about um, uh, Winnie Mandela that uh, in one of the you know, the the longest periods of isolation that she had as her husband was locked up and her children were taken away from her. um, She was counseled by somebody who said, stay, remain still and look for the people who are like you Mm. and draw some strength from those people. You may not be able to contact them. You may not be able to see them. But if you can just be with them, something will show up. And it's something that's really stuck with me um, for over a decade now that, um, you know, that there are, Hundreds of thousands of people who are like us, who are looking for ways to heal the nation, to to support um, their neighborhoods, and really looking for those people to be around with, um, uh, is is what will give you the hope um, that uh, you will need when you choose to become, you know, more despairing and 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 perhaps uh, you know more worried.
0: Yeah, and it's it's hard in this time. I mean, this is a moment where. Everybody's paralyzed together, <laughs> which makes, you know, hope something that we have to be intentional about. Um, and I appreciate right. that because I think in the realm of thinking about human rights, hope does not, um, it, you know, does not always come into the conversation because it's a hard thing to maintain under normal circumstances when you see significant uh, systems you know, failing to serve communities they were intended to serve. And yet you continue in this work. So, Runga, as you look ahead to these uncertain weeks and whatnot ahead, What for you will remain the focus in terms of human rights? Um, And I'd love for you to talk to me about it, both as a leader, an organization. There are many people listening to this who are also leading schools or communities or families. So as a leader, what are you thinking about in terms of preserving and promoting human rights? And then as just a Rungo Houghton, you know, Kilimani resident, dad, husband, friend, what are you thinking about as a human rights advocate?
1: So there's something that uh, most people don't know about uh, Amnesty International. Um, Our symbol is, uh, kind of our logo is uh, a candle. And it's a a hope-based symbol, but it also has another side to it, um, which is perhaps even more profound than simply the light that comes from a candle in the darkness, um, which is that uh, we light that candle um, for all the people that we weren't able to save. Mm-hmm. For all the people that died, that for all the people whose rights have been violated, for those who've been raped and uh, stigmatized and discriminated against, um, we light that candle. And what it is essentially is a affirmation of the humanity that will prevail even in times of tyranny. Um, so I keep that, um, you know, well, i not wearing it today, I usually have it as a pin on my um, uh, on my shirt, but it just reminds me that actually humanity will prevail, and that's, uh, that's not a... A scientific statement, that is a statement yeah. of faith. Absolutely. Right? Um, so in terms of our work, I think we will continue to um, uh, find ways of connecting the country. I think what's important at this point is really for multi-class, multi-regional, mostly geographical uh, solidarity um, and across different sectors. Uh, it's important that the state feels that it has the backing of the public when it takes actions to protect the public, and that also it has the corrective guidance of that public when it takes a misstep um, and that nothing is, you know, anti-state. It is all pro-state and really an opportunity for government to, to, to demonstrate greatness at this point. Mm. Um, uh, so we will work uh, on distance-based, um, I guess, distance-conscious and human rights policing at this point. Um, we will continue to work on um, how to keep, uh, you know, our mandatory quarantine facilities and the management of our patients uh, humane and dignified. And we will also to press. Uh, will also press the government on ensuring that you know water and food supplies are distributed to people. Um, it's been very exciting watching um, uh, individuals and uh, group, community groups rise to feed you know 200, 500 families, and the corporate sector to go a little bit further than that. Um, but I think what we do need now is we do need an emergency uh, stimulus package that targets uh, vulnerable communities uh, more directly. And we may need to think in terms of e-vouchers, cash transfers, rather than the physical distribution of, of food. Um, so these are the areas that we will work on. As a, you know, as a, a human being without a title and uh, really a part of the community, I think for me, um, I will continue to give 10 uh, to 12 hours every day Um, to looking at creatively how to give energy to um, my community, how to give energy to the country, um, to continue to point out the areas that we need to focus on. Um, And even something as basic as, you know, ensuring that our um, health workers and our police officers have personal protective equipment at this time um, is critical. Um, And that's something that we can all um, take action on. Uh, I am noticing something about myself. Um, so cabin fever shows up for all of us differently. Yes. Let me share mine. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have to interrupt a sense of impatience. Um, and that comes from a feeling that my time is precious. It's limited. Yeah, um, I can't waste time. Um, And if I'm wasting time, then let it be on Netflix and um, uh, (laughs) while I'm asleep. That's the only two things I can do. But um, I I realize that's also symptomatic of something that I'm going through. And um, remaining gentle and um, warm and compassionate Mm -hmm. at a time like this is important, not just for the Executive Director of Amnesty International, but for all of us and Yirungo as well.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think we can all do our small thing, being engaged, being kind, being aware, being awake. During this time, it's so easy to disengage and be overwhelmed, but I think we have to stay engaged. And thank you for the way that you're staying engaged, and both as a human being as well as a leader of of, uh, an important organization who we're relying on to protect human rights during this pandemic. So, Urungu, thank you for giving some of those 12 hours to me today. I'm so grateful for your service and your work and your leadership. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Lily. Keep up rooting and uh, keep calling us into action.
0: I'll do my best. Stay well, my friend. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, thinking about human rights during this time is not easy. None of the topics we've talked about since this pandemic started has have been easy, but it's important. It's important we stay awake, we stay connected. I like what Arungu said that there's no more us and them. We are all in this together. We all have a part we can play check on your neighbors, hold people accountable for the small things we're doing that either make the situation better or worse. Reach out for help when you need it. The national um, hotline for domestic abuse is 1195. I'll have more notes in the show description where you can get a few more resources. And in particular this week, I wanna highlight food for education. Food for Education has been working in informal settlements in Kenya for some years now. Their leader, Wairira, was recently recognized with the National Youth Prize for her dedication to making sure that kids do not go hungry when they are in school. And of course, since schools closed in March, her work has just doubled, really. And they've been doing amazing work feeding thousands of families. So if you're looking for a place to contribute, please do consider Food for Education foodforeducation.org. All of their information is online. You can find them easily and find a way to contribute to kids and families who really need our help. Keep at it, friends. We will get through this together. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message on Instagram or Twitter at Uproot and Lil, L-I-L-L. You can email me, uprootthepodcast at gmail.com. And on Facebook, it's at Uproot the Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, stay at home, wash your hands, (laughs) all that good stuff. Talk to you soon and be well, friends.